Thanks to Acast for hosting and monetizing the podcast. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Forget those Sunday night blues for a second with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Hi, hello there, welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm your host, the woman who fucking loves Euripides so much. Live. Well, cat's out of the bag. Plus, I mean, you've already seen the episode's description and podcasting SEO means the characters' names are always in the episode titles. But still, today, today we are diving back into my favorite tragedian, the man of the hour, the man of the fascinating and complex characters, but maybe not in this case, (laughs) Euripides. Can you believe I've only covered just a tiny fraction of the Greek tragedies that survive today? Honestly, I'm consistently surprised by how many there still are that I haven't touched. And today's episode, I really went back and forth about which play I was going to start a new series on. Alcestis or Helen? Alcestis or Helen? Well, I went with the Alcestis because I've actually been planning to do this one for months and had a guest set up and everything. And stay tuned, she's a fan favorite. But not to worry, because I am now obsessed with the ideas behind Euripides' is Helen, so that's coming before long. And I've got a guest for that one too. Man, my conversation episodes are a thrill. Before we dive into this play, just a reminder that today, 
My book of Greek mythology-themed cocktails is out in the world. It's so silly and fun, and I can't wait to hear what you all think of it. What cocktails are your favorites? What bizarre asides hidden in cocktail instructions really tickled you? What hero shade tossed into a boozy beverage that you most appreciated? So pick up a copy of the book Nectar of the Gods wherever you get your books. Or, as I accidentally wrote in the script, wherever you get your cocktails. (laughs) With that out of the way... Let's look at this play of Euripides. I have always considered it or understood it to be one of his most famous, but now I I don't know what I've heard or not heard. When your most famous plays are Medea and Bacchae, the others tend to fall by the wayside more than they deserve. Still, the reason I wanted to cover it now is that this play involves that oh-so-famous hero, the man I've covered many times this year, wading through his endless, endless stories, Heracles. Euripides' Alcestis was actually his earliest surviving work, but as far as I understand it, it was written pretty late into his career, or he'd been going for a while, but this is the earliest one we have. And because of that, or unrelated to that, because he's Euripides, maybe, the Alcestis is something of an enigma. It's weird and wonderful, tragic and funny. It is everything at once. Do you like how much I've told you so far without ever suggesting what this play is actually about, beyond including Heracles among its cast? That just adds to the suspense. (laughs) So does the fact that while Euripides is drawing off a myth— The Tragedians always were. This isn't a well-known myth. It wasn't a well-known myth to the ancient Athenians for whom Euripides was putting on this show. That, too, is part of the weirdness, the wonder. This play is truly something else. The introduction to the translation that I'm using by Rachel Kitzinger calls the Alcestis, quote, the most morally convoluted of surviving Greek dramas. This is episode 161. You could say she's living and she's dead. Euripides' Alcestis. Our story begins in Phiri, in Thessaly, the north of the Greek mainland. There is the king, Admetus, and Alcestis, the queen. But the play doesn't begin with them or anyone from their palace. Instead, Apollo walks on stage. But Apollo is not there in his capacity as god, or rather, not entirely. He tells the audience that he is there in Phiri, living in service to King Admetus, or rather, finishing his service to King Admetus. There was a bit of a kerfuffle with his father, Zeus. Zeus killed Apollo's son, Asclepius, with a lightning bolt, and in return, Apollo killed the Cyclops. Don't try to understand how these things fall into the wider mythology. It'll hurt your head and it doesn't matter. What matters 
Apollo's punishment for his crime was to live in service to this king, to Admetus, and that's what he's been doing. He's been working there as a herdsman, of all things, and protecting the house. But Apollo tells the audience he has learned now that Admetus is a pious man, and as such, Apollo has saved him from death. Apollo tells the audience that he saved Admetus from death, but it came at a cost. He tricked the fates, a feat in itself. In fact, in Aeschylus's Eumenides, this moment is, refer- is just referenced, and it seems that the tricky god Apollo plied the goddesses of fate with wine in order to sort out this escape from death. He just got the fates drunk, and he secured Admetus a fate free from death. But again, it came at a cost. Adamantus could escape this fate, could escape death, provided he found someone to go in his place, to die for him, to take his spot in the underworld. There is only one person in Admetus's life who agreed to do this, to take his spot in death. His wife, Alcestis. And if you think I'm throwing more information at you than normal, rushing through this play more than I typically would, with this much exposition and so little actual detail being thrown out, this is the first 20 lines of the play. Apollo is serving here as a messenger, letting the audience know where they stand, where they find themselves in this story of Admetus and Alcestis. He's setting the scene and he's got some things to spin out. He explains all of this background that Alcestis has agreed to die for her husband, something even Admetus's parents refused to do, and not only that, but today is the day of her death. Now, Apollo says, he will leave the house. He won't stay to witness this death. The gods don't pollute themselves with the death of humans, at least not a god like Apollo. The Chthonic gods, on the other hand, are there to move things along, which is why Apollo now tells the audience that he sees another god approaching. That's how he knows it's time to leave. The god of death, the personification of death, Thanatos, approaches Apollo on the stage. There are only two people on the stage to open this play, and they're both gods. We are off to a strong start, don't you think? Fuck, I love Euripides and everything weird and wonderful that he does with his plays. And this is the weirdest. What are you doing here? Thanatos asks Apollo. Quote, what are you doing hanging about? Are you plotting another crime? Usurping the rights of the gods below? He goes on to be more specific about what he's accusing Apollo of. Tricking the fates. Absolving Admetus of death. Apollo has, in essence, fucked with the natural order of things. He's caused trouble not only for himself, but for the Chthonic deities who handle these matters, for the fates, for everyone. Admetus, not Alcestis, was meant to die, and yet here they are, awaiting her death instead of his. And thus begins an incredible conversation between Apollo, the god of light and prophecy and healing and so much more, and Thanatos, often translated, as in this case, as just death, with a capital D. Thanatos is worried that, once again, Apollo is there to mess with the Chthonic gods to obstruct their power over life and death. Why are you holding your bow? he asks Apollo, thinking Apollo is going to use it for this purpose. 
I always have it with me, he responds. It's just a habit. Well, you also have a habit of helping this family when you shouldn't, Thanatos counters. Yeah, well, I felt bad for his misfortune, says Apollo. Does that mean you're going to keep another body from me? Apollo, I like to imagine here, rolls his eyes, says, I technically didn't force the first body from you. Thanatos points at the house behind them, where Alcestis is laying, dying, though we haven't seen her or anyone else yet. He asks, quote, why is he up here and not down there? He's swapping his life for his wife's, Apollo says. Oh, I know, I'm going to take her, Thanatos replies. Go ahead, do it, I'm sure I couldn't convince you otherwise. No, you couldn't persuade me not to kill her, Thanatos replied, and in this translation it notes that he did so sarcastically a god of death after my own heart. They go on, and I will do my best not to summarize every line here like I have been, but Euripides' dialogue is so good, it makes it hard. In any event, Apollo clarifies that he isn't asking to free her from death entirely, but perhaps she can reach old age before she dies. No, Thanatos makes very clear, adding, quote, like you, I enjoy my rights. When you're the god of death, you don't have a lot of power in the world beyond, well, death. He also tells Apollo that when people die young, he grows more prestigious. They continue to debate this, Apollo noting that if she does get old, she'll bring a lot more riches to her when she dies, to which Thanatos counters that such a law privileges the wealthy. Eat the rich. He doesn't say, but I'd like to think he does. Which, I mean, honestly, he might as well, because he explains that... If that were the case, rich people could essentially buy a longer life. Was Euripides a socialist? No, but I love him anyway. They're slowing down now, in their back and forth on the subject of poor Alcestis's life. When Thanatos notes that, quote, You can't have everything you're not entitled to. <laughs> the shade. Fucking love this dialogue so much. And reminder, because you just know I want to say the word, this back and forth, this quick dialogue in Greek plays is called stichomythia. And they are rocking it. But finally, Apollo gives his last short speech on the subject, saying that in the end, Thanatos will indeed give in to these demands. He explains that a man will arrive here in Phiri, a man sent by Eurystheus to Thrace in the north, sent there to bring back horses. That man will be a guest of Admetus, and he will force Thanatos to let Alcestis go. He finishes, quote, I'll give you no thanks, only hatred, when you do then what I ask for now. And in saying this, Apollo spoils the entire play. And then he leaves. The gods leave the stage. Thanatos finishes his time there by announcing that death is upon Alcestis, that she will be traveling to the underworld, to his realm, to the world of the dead. And that is the end of the role the gods play in the whole of this tragedy. A tragedy about being pulled to the underworld and brought back out again. The chorus men of Phiri come onto the stage, filling the void left by gods of light and dark. Why is the house so quiet? They ask. Why the silence? No one is here to tell us whether or not we should be mourning the death of the queen. Is she still alive? 
Quote, to us and to all, she seems the best of wives to her husband. The best of wives to her husband? That's something, isn't it? She's not the best to herself, that's for sure, but her husband wanted to live and she was willing to die for him. It's also interesting to start it out this way, beyond the absolutely intriguing and bizarre beginning, with a petty debate between powerful gods. That the chorus arrives with no knowledge of whether or not Alcestis is still alive, that they've been given no direction as to whether or not they should mourn yet, says a lot about how this play is going to go. And they're not done with it. They begin their song, continuing to question whether or not Alcestis remains alive. They sing, quote, Does anyone hear moaning or the beating of breasts? Is there groaning in the house that tells us that it's over? They shift into a back and forth among the chorus. The house wouldn't be so silent if she were dead, one of the chorus notes. Certainly if she is, her body still remains inside, another counters. Do you think so? One asks, what gives you hope? Adamantus couldn't have buried her on his own, one replies. And so they keep discussing the queen and all the signs that they can note, trying to determine whether or not she is alive or dead. They listen, they look around for anything to indicate what's going on, what they might have missed, what exactly is occurring inside the house. They sing of what's happened, the fight between the gods, Apollo's service to Admetus, Admetus's attempts to save himself. Their first song, their introduction, ends with, quote, Already every rite's been tried by the royal pair and for the royal pair. The altars of every god run with the blood of sacrifice. There is no cure for this disaster. Finally, an enslaved woman from inside the palace visits the chorus, and they ask her what they've spent so much time singing and chanting about. Is the queen still alive? This woman's response is iconic. She tells them, quote, You could say of her she's living and she's dead. And get ready, because this unnamed enslaved woman is about to bring us an absolutely incredible speech— I only wish she had a name. <laughs> she speaks with the chorus briefly, explaining that while Alcestis is still alive, she is close to death, it is coming for her, and can't be avoided. The chorus praises her, asking that the woman tell Alcestis that she is glorious in death, the best of wives. And who could say she isn't the best? The woman asks. How could anyone possibly say anything otherwise? Quote, how could any woman show more clearly she honors her husband? She's agreed to die for him. She goes on. The woman explains to the chorus that not only is Alcestis such the perfect, honoring wife, but she's preparing herself for death. It's the woman's job to prepare a body once they've died, washing it and dressing it in finery. Alcestis, though, does this for herself, so that she is ready when she finally dies. There's lots to be said about what is meant here morally. It's obviously fucked up in so many ways, and Euripides knows that. Alcestis shouldn't have to die for her husband, but she is, so her story is instead examined within that context. The woman tells the chorus that Alcestis prepared herself and then prayed at the altar of Hestia, the goddess of the hearth, the household. She asked Hestia to watch over her children once their mother is gone, to find her son a loving wife, her daughter a noble husband. And she prayed to Hestia 
Let them not be like their mother and die young. Let them live long and happily. She continues to explain how Alcestis is handling herself on this, her last day on earth. She traveled to the palace, worshipping at all the altars as necessary, before she went to her own bedroom and said goodbye to her bed. She said goodbye to her children, who wept at her feet. She gave them hugs and kisses. She let them know they're loved. And the enslaved people of the palace, too. The woman makes a point to note that Alcestis didn't find a single person, servant or slave, who she didn't wish to grasp hands with and say goodbye to. Essentially, to put it into a single sentence, Alcestis is a very, very good woman. And with that, she transitions to explaining how Admetus and Alcestis are handling it together. How her husband holds on to his wife, begs her not to leave him, weeps. He holds her fading body, her dying body, in his arms. But, the woman adds, Alcestis wishes to see the light of the day one last time. And with that, she tells the chorus that she will return inside with the news that they, supporters of Admetus, are the only ones there outside the palace, and so the couple should come outside. Left alone on the stage, the chorus laments not the death of Alcestis, but the grief of Admetus. They are supporters of the king, after all. Even the enslaved woman knew that. They're most worried for him, the man who will have to deal with the loss of his wife, who will have to live on without her. They call for some way out of his troubles, quote, Deliver it, please deliver. You did before, so be now a savior from death. Put a stop to murderous Hades. And before long, finally, after so much exposition, so much talk of their stories without hearing a single word from either of them, finally Admetus and Alcestis come out from the house and join the chorus on stage in the light of day for Alcestis's last time. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? 
Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Forget those Sunday night blues for a second with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Sun and light of the day and sky that swirls with scudding clouds. That is Alcestis's first line of the play, a quote, obviously. What a way to start your own death tragedy, though, don't you think? It's beautiful. She's interesting. Admetus speaks then, bringing things down and noting that, yes, the sun shines and isn't it nice, but what have we done to deserve the hatred of the gods? Which, I mean, kind of ironic, dude, because you know she's only dying because you didn't want to. But again, the judgment, or lack thereof, when it comes to Admetus, will come later. For now, I'm just too intrigued by this story. Alcestis is lifted up by some of their enslaved people, raised up so she can see. She says, quote, I see two oars, I see the boat on the lake, and the ferryman holds in his hand a pole. Charon calls me. Why do you delay? She's being hurried on by Charon, by those Chthonic gods, the gods of the underworld. It's her time. All of this section, by the way, is being sung. Alcestis enters the stage singing, even though we know her to be close to death. She's singing. She's maybe even joyous. She continues to, singing that she is nearly there. She asks that Admetus let her go, lay her down, that her legs are losing strength. She says that Hades is there, night is coming. She sings that it's done, her children have no mother, but, quote, may you live and feel joy, my children. Admetus follows this with his grief, calling out, wishing still that she didn't have to die. But, well, she's not actually all that close to death yet, because she's about to launch into a pages-long monologue. We are not done with Alcestis yet. Or at all, really, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Alcestis announces to Admetus that she wants to share her wishes with him. She then recounts how they got there, how she chose to give her life for his, how she made that call and believes it best for her, for their children, and for him. She laments that his own parents chose not to make the same decision. He'd asked his parents first when he learned that he was to die unless he could find someone to take his place. He asked his parents, because they were older and had no other children. Surely they would want to die for him. Alcestis laments that they declined. If they'd agreed, then their son would have lived a happy life with his wife, who he loves, with his children. And they do. They love each other. So much. 
That much Euripides makes very clear. This may be a story about questionable morality, among other things, what it means to swap your life with another person's, but it's certainly also a story of a married couple who loved each other with their whole hearts. And that in itself is interesting enough, certainly, when we're talking about Greek mythology, and Greek tragedy for that matter. How many husbands truly love their wives, unconditionally and eternally, and vice versa? After professing her love, her sadness that their lives have to go this way, Alcestis switches to what she wants from her husband. Love our children like I would. I know that you do, she tells him. And, quote, don't marry again and give them a stepmother. She'll be a worse woman than I, and out of envy she'll do violence to your children and mine. She emphasizes this, how a stepmother would handle children that aren't hers, how it would all fall apart. Then she switches to speaking directly to her daughter, who's there with her, though she doesn't speak. She tells her daughter, quote, Your mother won't be here when you marry, won't give you courage when you're giving birth, when a mother's kindness surpasses all, my child. This alone is beautiful and sad, but also just interesting. That Euripides writes this in, I just, I love it. Like, not only is this mother addressing her daughter before her son, but she's speaking of things that women would probably have had to deal with alone, just among each other. Things they shouldn't have to do alone and should have their mothers for, because no one else could help them in that same way. It's impressive, I think, that Euripides singled out not only marriage without her mother, but courage in childbirth. She speaks to Admetus again now, and her children with him, saying goodbye, telling him to boast that he had the best wife, that they had the best mother. At this, the chorus interjects, simply, quote, Be certain he'll do this, if he has any sense. I don't hesitate to speak on his behalf. Everyone loves Alcestis, and she knows her own worth, her value to her family. I'm a bit obsessed with her the further I get into her story. She's so strong and interesting, and this is such an early play for Euripides, and even still, he had this interest in writing a woman like Alcestis, a story like this one. I promise I'm trying to rein in my praise of him, but there is only so much I can do. And to be clear, that is not praise of her choosing to die over her husband, but sort of everything surrounding that. Admetus immediately reassures Alcestis that he will do as she says, and very happily. He has no desire to marry again, he tells her. He's had the perfect wife. He has the perfect children. There is no need for more. No one could love as much as he loves Alcestis. He says, quote, My grief for you will endure not just a year, but for as long, dear wife, as I have life. Honestly, he's convincing me of his value here. The gods cause awful shit to happen. Is it his fault? I just don't know. I suppose we'll see as this goes on. Morally questionable, indeed. Like, what are we meant to take from this? Admetus isn't done convincing us that he's a good man, though. He goes on, saying, quote, You gave up all that's dearest to save my life, so it's up to me now, isn't it, to grieve the loss of my wife, a wife like you. 
He goes on, saying that he won't have any parties, no dinners, there will be no flowers or music in the house. He'll never make himself happier, essentially. He'll never have his spirits raised. All his joy is gone, and he will live forever in mourning, thinking of his wife and how much he loves her. Admetus continues his speech to his dying wife, the love of his life. He says that he will have a skilled sculptor make Alcestis's likeness, that he will bring the statue to their bed, hold it in his arms. It will be a cold comfort, but something is better than nothing. He suggests that maybe he'll see her in a dream. Just that would be some comfort. He says to her, quote, if I'd the voice and songs of Orpheus to entrance Persephone or her husband and win you back, I'd have gone to Hades. Neither Pluto's hound nor ferryman Charon would have stopped me before I'd brought you back into the light. How is this going to go? Ugh, nerds, thank you so much, as always, for listening. Stay tuned for next week and more of Alcestis's story. I've written all three of the episodes at this point, and it is, it is really something else. I'm so excited for you to hear the rest of this play. Story of my life with this podcast, though, like at least specifically when I cover Greek tragedies, like, fuck, this is so good. They're all so good and interesting and unique and weird and ugh, sigh. I love Euripides. He's just so goddamn interesting. Like, I want to know everything about him. I want a time machine. I want to just talk to him. I want to know how he actually felt about women and the way they lived in Athens. I want to know everything. Aristophanes mocked Euripides for caring about women. Do you know that? Euripides was interested in what it was like to live as a woman in that world. He considered marriage to be a more equal endeavor than it was treated in that world. Like, he actually gave a fuck. Meanwhile, Aristophanes wrote a satire and basically called him, like, a shit to women. And lots of history books love to pretend that that means Euripides actually was shitty to women, even with evidence to the contrary. And, like, it's a quote from Aristophanes, and it's a comedic play. It's so interesting. Okay, I'm done praising Euripides, I guess, for now, at least. Like, there's more episodes of this play coming, obviously. I'm going to praise him some more. Now, this didn't fit into the way that I wanted to tell the story of this play. And in fact, I learned it just from like a footnote in the translation that I'm reading. But there's some interesting family history when we're thinking about Alcestis. She's the daughter of Peleus, and that's Peleus with an A, the man who usurped the throne of Iolcus from Jason's father and sent him off in search of that golden fleece. If you remember from my episodes on Medea, the daughters of Peleus murder him through our favorite witch's machinations, but it seems typically, I guess, it isn't Alcestis among these daughters, so I think we're meant to understand that she lived on and her, like, after her two sisters murdered their father. What a life. Greek tragedy, you guys. I like it a lot. To finish off today's episode, a reading of a five-star review, because I love you all for leaving me five-star reviews. It means the whole world. Today's is from Ace Waffle Council in the States. 
A-plus handle, truly perfect. Their review reads, awesome. I love how Liv tells the stories, and it's so awesome to listen to while I'm doing anything. I listen whenever I can. This brings me so much joy. Thank you for making this, Liv. Thank you. These reviews bring me so much joy. Let's Talk About Myth Savvy is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. The podcast is hosted and monetized by Acast. I am Liv, and oh my gods, I love your Ippity so much. I just want to meet him. I wish he wrote a memoir. Could you imagine? Ugh, I love this shit. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Forget those Sunday night blues for a second with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.